Cliff is preaching this morning from Psalm 86, and this is the ESV version. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered me, delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Amen. Am I here? Thank you, uh, Denise, for reading that. Uh, how's everybody doing? Good. So I'm a little under the weather, too. So if I stop preaching, just preach to yourself. Read the... <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so we're going to be talking about prayer. And we're talking about today. And we'll be talking about it over the next several weeks. Not sure how long. But I want to... Uh, begin by just, I don't know if this is encouraging or not, encouraging you a little bit with my failure. This morning, I, I wake up a lot on Saturday nights, Sunday mornings, just wake up thinking about things. And I woke up this morning thinking, you really blew it, man. You didn't pray. And what I was thinking about was uh, Friday evening, I went down to Arlington Heights Park, where uh I am the assistant coach to Jackson Rickards' flag football team, Chad being the head coach. And so I'm the defensive specialist because, because I play defense in high school football. All right, whatever. I actually pulled a couple muscles just trying to help the kids. But, but so we did the practice, and we did okay. But it was near the end of the practice, and one of the reasons I'm doing this, and I think Chad too, is to just be engaged in the community in some way. Because you can, as a pastor, you can get kind of isolated from 
the world out there. And so I am, uh, we're about done with practice. And this woman uh, starts running over towards us. She's got two little kids and she's saying in Spanish some things about needing help. And I'm going, oh, what's going on? And I look over and there's, uh, it's kind of getting dark and there's a man grabbing this other woman. And I go, oh no, uh, what, what's happening here? And so uh, uh, Chad and I start walking over there and we th- I'm thinking, oh, we're going to have to grab him. Is he assaulting her? What's going on? turns out they had been jogging and she was fainting. She was passing out and he was trying to hold her up and they're asking for help. And she's like going unconscious and looking kind of pale. And so, uh, you know, CPR, you know, I don't, what can you do? And so, and so do you want me to call 911? And he, the guy looks and he says, yes. And so I called and uh, then we just stood around and she goes to the ground and, you know, she's eventually feeling a little better even before the ambulance comes. Chad goes out and as the, it's a big park. So the ambulance and the paramedic come in and come to her and take her, take her away. And you know what? I didn't even think to pray for her. Didn't even cry. That was the thing. It was, is that even, you know, I didn't think, I didn't think, oh, I should pray for her. And then I was embarrassed. I'm not going to do that. That could have happened as well, but I didn't even think to. And I, I was thinking about my prayer instincts. What are my, what are my prayer, what are my instincts to pray? And so I tell you that as the one that's now going to speak to you about prayer, knowing that I am not perfect in this at all. I'm working on it. But I think what we're learning here in Psalm 86 will help us all in our instincts to pray. As we look at who God is, as we look at at this is who we're praying to, I think our instincts as we encounter situations in our own lives, in the lives of others, will automatically be drawn to prayer. So last week we began to look at Psalm 86, again a prayer of David. We saw that he was pr- what he was praying for. What, what was he asking God to do for him? Specifically, he asked to, God to listen to him, to preserve his life. There's people trying to kill me, preserve my life, to be gracious to him, to gladden his soul. He's asking him to do some things internally. He's feeling depressed or something. Make gladden my soul, to teach him God's righteous ways. Teach me your ways, Lord, to unite his heart, to give him an undivided heart loyal to God to give him strength, to save him, to show him a sign of his favor. I mean, these are some uh, big prayers, right? David has some pretty substantial requests of God here. And the question we asked last week was, what gave David the confidence to ask uh, to pray for these things? And what we saw was that mixed in with David's request to God were truths about who God is. David is saying, Lord, I can request these things of you because I know who you are. I've beheld your glorious attributes. I've experienced your presence and your power in my life. It's because he's beheld God's glory that he can confidently draw near to God in prayer. And so if we want to be like David, if we want to pray like David, if we want to have instincts like David to pray, uh, we too must behold the glory of God. We need to see and ponder and take in who he is. We need to see what he does. 
We need to meditate on his glorious attributes that we find in his word. That we find here today in Psalm 86. That we too might confidently draw near to him in prayer. If we don't know who God is, if we don't truly understand in our heads and in our hearts, I think a lot of us, I think that's my, I have an understanding of God here, but it hasn't moved to here in all circumstances. That's, this is where your instincts are. They come from your heart. If we don't understand God in our heads, in our hearts, then we won't pray to him, or at least we won't pray to him in the right way. But when we come to a a biblical understanding of who God is, when we in His Word behold His glory, that's when our natural inclination becomes to draw near to Him in prayer. And so last week we began to behold some of His glorious attributes uh, found in Psalm 86. We saw three truths, glorious truths, about how God relates to those who trust in Him. Specifically, first we saw that God is our personal God. In verse 2, David says, you are my God. Those who trust in God enter into a personal relationship with him. We know him. He knows us. Second, we saw uh, he's not only our personal God, he is the one and only God. In verses 8 through 10, David says, I'm not going to read them all, but he, at all, but he says, there is none like you among the gods. You alone are God. You alone our God, and have the power to answer our prayers. This morning, I, I was, uh, as I was driving into the church, it was uh, 5.30, 6 o'clock. I'd come usually and have the radio on. And this woman was, uh, was talking, it's KFI, the radio station, and she was talking about her mom and how her, her mom was sick. And she thanked the audience. I guess she had mentioned this before. And she thanked the audience for their prayers. And she said this. She said, the power of prayer is undeniable. And I said in my head, prayer has no power in and of itself. The power of God is undeniable. It matters who you're praying to. Are you praying to the one and only God? Are you praying to some spirit out there? Do you count on prayer in itself or are you trusting in God alone? God is the one and only God. And finally, to see the third truth we talked about last week, we had to move beyond the Psalms, beyond Psalm 86, beyond the Psalms, really beyond the Old Testament to get the picture the final picture of God and how he relates to us, his children. He relates to us as his father. Jesus taught his disciples, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So last week we laid a foundation for prayer by establishing how God relates to those who trust in him. We can pray to God because he's given himself to us. He's our personal God. We can pray to God because He has the power to answer prayer. He's the only, the one and only true God. And we can pray to God because He's adopted us into His family. He's our Father and we are His children. Now this week, as we continue to look at Psalm 86, I want to build on that foundation. I want to continue to behold the glory of God. This is what this is about, uh, people. If we're not beholding the glory of God, if we're not seeing who God is, 
We're not going to be attracted to him. We're not going to come to him in prayer. We're not going to draw near to him. I want us together to meditate, really. This is sort of a meditation, really, on three qualities of who God is this morning. Meditate on our God, our Father, who he is, that we might draw near to him, that we might rightly come to him in prayer. The first thing I want us to behold today is that God is good. God is good. Really, the three character qualities we're going to look at, if you want to fill in the blanks in your thing, are all in verse 5. So uh, we'll touch on other verses in this psalm, but verse 5 is where we're going to spend most of the time. That word good also, also means to act rightly to do the, the right thing. Lord, you are good. You always do what is right. Your ways are perfect. It's so good to know that God is good. Can we just say that together? God is good. On, on three. One, two, three. God is good. Because the truth that God is our personal and all-powerful God that he, who, that he who has the ability to answer our prayers doesn't necessarily mean that he always answers them in good ways. But the fact that he's our father and that he's good means that God will always do what is right, what is good for his children. A few weeks ago, I, I shared that one of the verses I spent time meditating on uh, during my sabbatical was Jeremiah 32.40. Where God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. In this verse, God promises that that he will not turn away from doing good to his people. When you put your trust in God, when he becomes your father, he makes this everlasting covenant with you. And part of that covenant is that he will not turn away from doing good to you. Therefore, you can know that God is actively at work in your life right now for your good. If you're his child, if you've trusted in him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Is that impacting the way you live, the way you think, the way you relate to others, the way you complain or don't complain? Do you believe that even in the midst of difficult circumstances that God is at work for your good? And does that belief drive you to him? Does it drive you to cry out to God who is in heaven, to your father who is in heaven? Uh, David believed that God is good. And therefore he cried out to him in his difficult circumstances. In verse 7, Psalm 86, he says, In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for, your answer, for you answer me. The context of David's prayer, Psalm 86, is some kind of trouble. In verse 14, we find out that 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 trouble is that there are some bad men trying to take his life, trying to kill him. He's in the midst of trouble. He's in the midst of someone, some group of people trying to take his life. But David knows that God is good, and so he turns to him in prayer. Hundreds of years before Paul wrote the most quoted, uh, I believe, promise in the Bible, Romans 8.28, David knew it was true. He knew, and, and we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Why does God work all things together for good? 
because he's good. This is a truth that we need to, uh, to know in our heads and in our hearts. We need to behold the glory of God's goodness. We need to let the truth of his goodness gladden our souls in times of trouble. We need to let the truth of God's goodness drive out the fear and the anxiety and the worry that we're so prone to allow to dominate our hearts. Again, as I already shared, uh, prior to my sabbatical, uh, I was experiencing, I would say, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, uh, specifically in relationship to my leadership of this church. I feared what people thought about me. I feared that I was a failure. I feared I was causing the church to fail. But it was through meditating on this glorious truth of God's goodness that my, my fears were washed away. I already knew, by the way, I went to seminary. I've read this verse before. I memorized Romans 8, 28. I already knew that God is good in my head, but I allowed it to be driven out. I wasn't beholding the glory of his goodness in my life. I kind of had a general idea. He's good but I wasn't applying it to my situation, to my life. And so in my time of trouble, uh, fear and anxiety and worry would dominate. In my, in my time of emotional turmoil, I, was, I, was, I wasn't trusting in God's goodness to make a difference in me or in my difficult situation. But as I meditated on Psalm 86, on Jeremiah 32, even on Romans 8.28, and as I prayed for God to transform my heart, to give me a heart that, that fully believed in His goodness, the fear and anxiety began to subside. Oh, it continues to try to uh, slither back into my soul. But I've seen the glory of God's goodness. My heart has been transformed, and, and through prayer, to my, to my good father, my good, good father. Fear is, is, is defeated. It's being defeated. And so I'd call upon each and every one of us to behold the glory of God's goodness in your life. That God is actively at work in your life if you've trusted in Him. If you serve Him, if you follow after Him, if you're called according to His purpose, there's some conditions here. You have to be His child. This applies to His, his children. God is actively at work for your good. I know there are those at Bridges who are currently experiencing trouble in their lives. Difficulties, circumstances are causing you to experience fear and worry. These difficult circumstances may be of your own making, or they may be of someone else or something else's doing. They may be because of your sin or the sin of someone else or, or it may have nothing to do with sin. But in any case, I exhort you to behold, to meditate on the glory of God's goodness. Know the truth of His Word that for those who trust in Him, He is at work for your good. And if you don't know that, if you don't know it in your heart... If you don't understand the truth of his goodness, if, you, if you've read the book, if you've read the Bible and those truths just aren't into your heart, then, then go to prayer. 
Go to prayer and say, God, change my heart. Transform my heart. Teach me your ways. That you're good. God, implant the truth of your goodness deep in my soul. So I'll trust you in all circumstances. So that I'll draw near to you. That, that you will continually bring this truth into my heart. As I experience difficulty, that I'll always remember that above all that, you're good. Knowing that you're at work for my good. Now, now one of the greatest ways we behold God's glorious goodness is by experiencing the forgiveness he offers. That's our second point this morning. God is good and God is forgiving. Verse 5 continues, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Pretty straightforward, right? You're good. And as an outworking of your goodness comes forgiveness. The word forgiving also means to pardon Part of God's nature, who he is and what he does, is to forgive, to pardon sinners. And for us, uh, all of whom are sinners, sorry, this is such good news, right? This is the heart of the gospel. If God were not a forgiving God, there would be no gospel, no good news for sinners, no justification, no salvation, no heaven, no relationship with God, and therefore no prayer. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah says that our iniquities, our sins, that's what separates us from God. They cause God to hide his face from us, to not hear us, to not hear our prayers, to not answer what we're asking him. But David, and we know David, if you know David, he's a king. He's a man after God's own heart, and he is a sinner, right? We know the stories. Read uh Read the story of David and Bathsheba. Read the, his, his confrontation with the prophet Nathan and read his response in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. We know David is a sinner. And in verse, eight, verse 6, he says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. David can ask God to hear David, a sinner, can ask God to hear, to give ear to his prayer, to hear his plea for grace. God, I'm a sinner and I need your grace in my life. David can pray this way only because God is forgiving. David knew the truth that the apostle John would write hundreds of years later in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you don't, uh, if you're taking notes and you want a verse to, that you, if you haven't already memorized this verse, memorize this verse. If, we confess, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. When we confess our sins, God forgives and we're cleansed. We're able to be in relationship with God and therefore he hears our prayers. 
We're cleansed. There's, that separation is gone. As we've talked about, the veil is removed. And what that means, and this is glorious, and what that means is when we sin, and, and we do continue to sin, we don't, uh, beca- as we're in this process of, of prayer and growing our relationship with God, we don't, we don't become sinless. We hopefully sin less. So as we uh, confess our sins, we're cleansed. We're able to be in that relationship with God. God's forgiveness, though, then swings the, the doors of heaven wide open that our prayers can be heard. And what that means is that when we violate His commandments, when we uh, turn away from Him for that time, when we don't trust in Him, the fact that God is forgiving means when we sin, we can turn back to Him. We can go to Him. Suppose we were to remove this aspect of God's character, His nature. Suppose God did not forgive. Then when we sinned, uh, we would be done for. It would be over. We would only have the righteous wrath of God uh, in our future. And therefore, our natural instinct would be, and maybe rightly so, even though rightly but foolishly so, to run from God. But because God is good and God is forgiving, we don't have to run from Him. We can run to Him. We can seek Him. We can confess our sins. We can receive forgiveness. We can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now, more than forgiveness, this is what's amazing about God. He always goes the step beyond. More than just, okay, forgiveness, you got it, you're cleansed. We can ask for the strength to overcome that particular sin or any sin in our life. God not only forgives our sins, He empowers us to overcome sin. Remember, He's our Father, and He's good, and He forgives. It would be a poor father who freely forgave his children for doing wrong and harmful things without ever helping them to change. My father was all about helping me change. Let me assure you of that. When we come to God in confession and in prayer for forgiveness, we also come seeking His transforming power. That's what David is seeking. Notice in verse 11, he prays, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Yes, God forgives, but He also teaches. He teaches us His ways. The ways to overcome sin. Now, like all good fathers, his teaching will involve uh, discipline. The author of Hebrews, quoting Proverbs 3.12, writes, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If the Lord receives you as his son, as his child, then he will discipline you. I found in my life that sometimes my discipline involves uh, external consequences for my sin. But his discipline always involves internal conviction of my sin. When I sin, God continues to convict me until I come to him seeking not only forgiveness but transformation. He doesn't let me go. 
He's given us, when we come to him uh, in faith, when we trust in, in him as our Lord and Savior, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwelling within us never lets us continue in our sin for long, at least. He continues to convict. I don't know, I can't remember who wrote the, the song or song or coined the phrase, but, but in this, in this uh, respect, God is like the hound of heaven. He continues to pursue you, to convict you. God will not only teach us his ways, but he empowers us to walk in those ways. He does this by transforming our hearts. As we pray for forgiveness, we should also pray for uh, this united, this undivided heart. We should pray for an undivided, a loyal to God heart that fears him, that fears displeasing God by disobeying his commandments. God, forgive my sins and give me a heart that's undivided, that's loyal to you alone. A heart that fears your name. A heart that fears disappointing my good heavenly Father. So behold God's glory. That he not only forgives our sin, he empowers us to overcome our sin. When we behold this truth about who God is, it should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to seek after him. It should drive us, especially in our sin. I mean, our first response, our instinct, we talked about instincts in prayer. And I know this is hard. We've, we've sinned. We've broken his commandment. We know this, our relationship is broken and our instinct is to turn away. We need to develop the instinct to turn to God. In that moment, in our time of trouble that we've caused ourselves. Now, before we move to the third truth about God, which we may not even get to this morning, uh, I want us to take a moment and behold, uh, really, take, take, we're going to go a little deep here, if it's okay, and behold the glory of how God forgives. So we, we've stated the truth, God forgives, but, but how is this possible? You see, God is not only forgiving, but his word teaches that he's holy, His word teaches he's righteous, he's just, he's perfect. And because of that, for sin to be justly forgiven, there must be payment. There must be a sacrifice. Blood must be shed. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, uh, that shedding of blood and forgiveness is pictured in the death of, of sacrificial animals, of, 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 of sheep and bulls and goats and doves and all of that. I say it was pictured because the author of Hebrews also, also writes this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No animal sacrifice in and of itself ever took away a single sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system would have been meaningless if Christ had not come. When Christ shed his blood on the cross, that one sacrifice gave meaning to all the other sacrifices. What I mean by that is for those like David, who lived before Christ, their trust in God to forgive their sins, their trust that God is a forgiving God and and obedience to God by making the sacrifices that he required would have meant nothing 
if Christ had not been the ultimate one and only true sacrifice. Again, the author of Hebrews makes this clear. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ was for all time. For time from the first sin, the sin of uh, Adam, the sin of Adam and Eve, to your the sins, your sins and my sins. It was for all time, and it was one sin for all who trusted and obeyed God before and after his death. Christ's death gave meaning to the animal sacrifices that came before him and put an end to all other sacrifices after him. Now, I know this is kind of uh, a little deep. Maybe you're not quite grasping it. I, I pray that you will. But, but I want us to understand what it took for God to provide us with forgiveness. I want this to impact not just our heads. I want it to impact our hearts. I want us to make sure we understand just how important Christ's sacrificial death was. Some might think, they might read the Old Testament and think, well, why did Christ have to come? There was a system in place for dealing with sin without Jesus. That system was only a picture, only a shadow. It was made real or or meaning was put into it when Christ came. I want us to know that for you and for I and for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah... For all who trust in the Lord, our forgiveness comes only through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And I want us to behold the glory of God who would sacrifice His one and only Son that we might be forgiven. That you might be forgiven. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Yet it was, he's he's prophesying, he's looking to the future, he's looking to the cross, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him. Let that word crush impact you. That word crush means to bruise, to break into pieces, to destroy, to smite. I want us to behold the the glorious and yet scandalous cross. The cross is glorious because it demonstrates the lengths to which God went to purchase our forgiveness. He crushed his son that you might be forgiven. If you read the Gospels, you know that the Romans played their part, the Jews played their part, and our sins, all of us, played our, its part in crucifying Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it was His decision. Ultimately, it was God's decision. The cross shows the depth of God's goodness and love for those who trust in Him. But the cross is also scandalous because the purchase of our forgiveness meant the crushing death of the sinless Son of God. On the cross, Jesus took our place. We deserved to be crushed. But He died for our sins that we might be forgiven, that we might escape the wrath of God. He took on the wrath of God and instead of experiencing that wrath, we, it's not like, I mean, this is like uh, uh, freaking, can I say that, amazing. It's not just that we don't get the wrath of God, that would be good enough. But we also get to enter into relationship with God himself because his son was crushed. The only way that God can be our father 
is through trusting in Jesus Christ, the one who was crushed for our sins. Jesus Christ alone provides our forgiveness. Now maybe today, you're struggling to believe that God can forgive your sin. Pastor, if you only knew what I've done. Maybe you think your sin is too great. Behold the glory of God who would crush His one and only Son for your sin, for you. To to think that your sin is too great for God to forgive is to think that your sin is greater than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's foolish thinking. So no matter what you've done, God is willing and able to forgive. All you must do is turn to Him and trust in Him. Give your life to Him. Uh, There's something you have to do. You have to come to Him. You have to confess your sin. And you have to receive His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy. And beyond that, don't just receive His forgiveness. Behold the glory of God who will teach you His ways. A God who will discipline you for your own good. A God who will transform your heart. A God who will enable you to overcome the sin in your life. I'm not preaching. I never would preach cheap grace. It's not like say a prayer and you're forgiven. It's say a, a prayer of commitment to God, to allowing God to work in your life, to receiving His free gift of the Spirit that works in your life, that convict, that will then, for from that day forward, convict you of sin and call you to repentance. If you're struggling with sin, any sin, God is waiting for you to come to Him. I know you think you're, you need to run from Him. That's our instinct. But we need to, we need to get a new instinct based on the truth of His Word, based on the fact that He's our good Father and He forgives, we need to come to Him to confess our sin, to receive forgiveness, and to experience the transformation that He offers. All right. I keep looking at the clock because I got one more. And uh, I'm going to tell you what it is. But then I'm going to save it for next week. This third and final truth about God is maybe the most important. And so uh, you need to come back next week. It answers the question. uh, My name is uh, Cliff, by the way. And so this is a little cliffhanger. Huh? That's... Sorry. It it answers the question, why did God uh, go to such extreme lengths to purchase our forgiveness? Why for our sake did God crush His only begotten Son? Because God is love. Patty already filled it in. I know she did. It's right there in verse 5, right? David repeats this truth over and over again. Three times in the psalm, he proclaims God is love. Verse 5, For you, O Lord, are, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. 
Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are good, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Over and over again, David states the awesome truth that God is abounding. He's overflowing. He's full of steadfast love. One of the things that I, I, I'm, I'm, inter, I'm just introducing this. We're, we're going to do more of this love, but I'm, I'm going I'm to give you enough today that maybe you can do something with it. One of the things that I noticed uh, as I read through the Psalms during my sabbatical is that this truth, and I would, I would uh, commend this to all of us to, to just read through the Psalms. I mean, sometimes the Psalms, they get a little, you know, when David's being chased around and my enemies are about, you're, you're going, what? Come on. But it's so filled with, with this truth. There, there's always, there's always, most of the time the psalm ends with, but you God are amazing. And so throughout the psalms, maybe the most repeat, repeated uh, theme throughout the psalms is this abounding steadfast love of God. David knew the love of God. That phrase steadfast love is just one word in the Hebrew. It's this word hesed. And it's packed full of meaning. It includes the idea of long-lasting, enduring kindness, goodness, and care. It's love that desires what is best for and acts in the best interests of the object it loves. And do you see why this is so important? For us to behold the glorious love of God. Because it's when we're uh, convinced of his love. You need to be convinced of his love for you. When, when we're convinced that his, his kindness and his goodness and his care is meant for us, it's then that we'll be drawn to him. It's then we can go before the Lord with our requests and our petitions, knowing that, that we're going before the one who loves us more than any other person in the world, more than our parents, more than our Siblings, if, if, if that's a thing, if they do love you more than our spouse or our children. Because God's capacity to love is abounding. It's, it's actually infinite because God is infinite. And he directs the love, this love, to his children, to those who trust in him. So, so go to him in prayer, knowing that, that in his arms you will find abundant, steadfast love. This is, this is foundational. What I mean is that that it's because of God's love, that that God is love, and we're going to talk about that next week, that God is love. Uh, His love for us, that's why He's our personal God. That's why He's our Father. That's why He's good to us. That's why He forgives us. And the list goes on and on. We'll see more of who He is and how He relates to us because of His love in weeks to come. So I would just encourage you this week, maybe, maybe take some time, read through, you know, get ahead of me, read through that Psalm 86, underline more of these uh, amazing, glorious attributes of God, meditate on them yourself. Take them to prayer, ask God to convince you that this is who he is. Maybe this week, ask him to convince you that he's forgiving Even in the midst of your sin, he's forgiving. Ask him to convince you that he's good. Ask him to convince you that he loves you, that he is love.
Would you pray with me to that end? Lord, God, I pray that you would transform our hearts, that you would, uh, that you would work, that you would teach us your ways. Lord, that you would give us undivided hearts, loyal to you, Lord. That you would convince us of who you are, of your glorious nature. Lord, that we would turn to you. That we would turn to you who are good and who are loving and are forgiving, Lord. And we would trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.